Hi, I'm Marshall Ramsey. For years, I've drawn the most interesting people in Mississippi. Now, I get to interview them, too. Welcome to Conversations Podcast, where I sit down with the famous and folks who should be famous, and we just talk. You can take the writer out of Mississippi, but can you take the Mississippi out of a writer? That's a question you could easily put to Steve Yarborough, author of 11 books and recipient of nearly as many awards. Steve grew up in Indianola, but he now lives in Boston, where he teaches the craft of writing at Emerson College. And you'll even find him on social media from time to time, strumming a pretty sweet guitar. Steve, welcome home. Thanks. It's always good to be back. Yeah, you left the heat and humidity of Boston to come back to the heat and humidity of Mississippi. Well, at least uh, my body's ready for it now. That's a good point. And we have air conditioning here. That's true. Got the new book. I've been reading it. I'm about a chapter into it, and I apologize for not having the whole book read. Uh, but I love the whole premise of literally two people from opposite sides of the world running into each other and watching their lives just go. Poof. Right. Well, I mean, how did you come up with the unmade world? Right. Yeah. How did you come up with that whole concept? And, I, and before you get that answer out there, I do love that there's little bits of your life all through your books, too. That's a nice touch. Right. Well, I'm married to a woman from Poland. Yeah. And for uh, 15 years, we had an apartment in Krakow and went there every year. Mm-hmm. Um, my children were born in the U.S., but they spoke Polish first. Oh, wow. Because their mother was at home more than I was. Yeah. Um, so in a sense, though, that novel is chronicling how um, two men who are, you know, one's Polish, one's American, they have virtually nothing in common, their lives... They encounter one another and, and with catastrophic results. Um, in a sense, my life was, was like that with happier results. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that, that the American character in the novel muses about is that um, he met his wife through an accident. And he loses his wife through an accident. Yeah. And so... Um, yeah, there are there are aspects of my own life and everything, but I, I will go to my grave saying I'm not an autobiographical writer. Well, you do, though, and one thing I, I think I appreciate about your work, you always write about where you've lived. Well, place is really important to yeah. me, and I think that's true, um, you know, for a lot of writers, but it's true for almost every Southern writer I yeah. ever knew. And, um, you know, one of the settings in the novel is Fresno, California. And I lived in Fresno for 21 years and never wrote about it until I left it. I also never wrote about Mississippi until I left it. Why is that? Well, you know the cliche, um, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it made um, my heart grow fonder of right. any place that I've ever left. But it did allow for a certain perspective. Yeah. When I moved to California, virtually every day of my life, as soon as I opened my mouth, somebody would say, where are you from? And if somebody asks you every day, where are you from? You begin to ask yourself, where, where am I from? What's unusual about it? And so um, viewing things from afar that I had in many instances experienced up close as a child um, gave me a perspective on the place that I didn't have before. And that's been true for me whenever I've left a place. You grew up in Indianola um, during the 60s, during the Civil Rights Movement, more or less. Tell me a little bit about your parents, because obviously there had to be a real value on education with them for you to end up 
to becoming a writer? Was it something where you were really, truly encouraged to read? Did they discover early on you had kind of a, a taste for writing? Well, talk a little bit about when you were a kid. Well, um, my parents did both respect education, but mm. neither one of them had much of it. Really? Neither Neither of them even graduated from high school, huh. let alone college. My dad, who for 20 20-something years, worked for this television network as a transmitter technician, um, went back and got himself a GED. I think he was 39 years old. And then he uh, took some correspondence classes to get certified to run a transmitter. And, you know, um, that's what he did until he quit work. But my dad was a big reader. Mm -hmm. And one of the formative experiences in my life. Um, and if I'm to be truthful, I don't know if he was a farmer at this time or if he was running a cotton gin, but it was during a period when he could have been doing either one. Uh, I walked into his bedroom one night and he had probably lint from the cotton gin on his, on his pants. He was spread out across the bed, dog tired. And he had this big leather bound book that he was reading, really big mm -hmm. book. And I remember saying, Daddy, what's that? And he said, uh, it's a book called Paradise Lost, son. It's, uh, it's a long poem. Boy, it's beautiful. This is a man with no education. Yeah. And, um, you know, so he's reading Paradise Lost that day. The next day he might be reading Zane Gray. Um, he didn't have hierarchies. The only thing that mattered was whether or not he liked it. And I know that, that that desire to find out what was in books um, rubbed off on me. Um, and then with my mother, it was just always, <laughs> she was looking at my report card, <laughs> which was frequently n not a pretty sight. <laughs> That's how you learn the alphabet, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but my mother taught me to read mm -hmm. when I was about four years old. Really? Um, she, and she wasn't trying to teach me. She was reading to me from those wonder books. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, she realized that I seemed to know what the words were. Right. And she, you know, so she would get another book out that she hadn't read, and she would ask me, do you know that word? And I would say, were, or, you know, boy. And I guess I had been looking at at the letters while she was reading them, and through some weird kind of osmosis, I could read. At what point did you say, you know what, uh, I think I'll become a writer? Oh, when I was about 19 or 20 years old, uh, the first thing I wanted to be was a musician. And I don't even know how old I was when I learned to play guitar. I'm going to say nine or 10, yeah. probably. And by the time I was about 12 or 13, I had hit a plateau. I was pretty good. I was playing with adults mm -hmm. in a country band, but I didn't get any better. I was also a football player, and that was the second thing I wanted to be, and I did go to college on a football scholarship. Where'd you, where'd you go? Uh, Delta State University, and I played for two years and realized that this was not my um, <laughs> calling in life. So I transferred to Ole Miss, and right around that time, that's where I thought, um, probably with a high degree of desperation, I don't want to be a tractor driver. I don't want to run a cotton gin. Yeah. Not that those are not honorable professions, but I, I had seen that they weren't bringing my family happiness. Mm -hmm. 
And since I'd always been a reader, I decided, well, maybe I can write. And so for a long time, I just flailed around. Nothing that I wrote was any good, and I did have enough taste to know that it was no good, and it just frustrated me. And that's where a lot of people who want to pursue an art, Mm -hmm. that's where they quit, because especially if reading or painting or music or whatever really matter to them, and if they spend a lot of time absorbing that art, they know that what they're doing is not good. Right. And they get frustrated, and they quit. But since I could envision no other life for myself, I didn't really have that option. Yeah, and some people, too, they start getting the rejections, and it just, I don't know if it hits their soul or what what the deal is, and they just walk away. But, you know, I mean, you you probably are like me. I have a whole drawer full of rejection letters. Um, I'm sure you've probably read uh, Larry Brown's work. Yes. Larry was a great friend of mine. Years ago, when I was teaching at Fresno State, I had him out to talk to my students, and one of the students asked him, Mr. Brown, uh, do you have any idea how many rejections you got before you were published? And Larry didn't miss a beat. He said something like, Yep, 1,137. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it was a massive number. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know exactly what it was. I used to have a, a running argument, lasted for years. Um, Larry said, there's no such thing as talent. And I said, yes, there is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he would say, no. If you saw what I was writing for years when I couldn't get published, you would say Larry Brown had no talent. And I said, no, that's not what I would say. I would say Larry Brown... Um, is a natural storyteller who has not refined his technique, you know. So it was a chicken or egg thing (laughs) back and forth on that. But, I mean, you know, with Larry, though, like I said, it was the persistence, and he put in the the cliche 20,000 hours on it. Of course he did. But but you have to love something to the point where you want to do the work. I know there were things that he had to learn, and there were plenty of things that I had to learn, too. Right. Well, I mean, talk about your time in Oxford, because obviously there were people running all around it's like a mecca for, for writers. Were there other people there in town that kind of influenced you that you were able to, to touch base with and learn from? Well, a really important person to me um, was a man named Evans Harrington, who was a professor at Ole Miss. Um, there's a book coming out of, of Evans' fiction uh, with, and a few essays in the fall, I believe, and I wrote the introduction for it. Evans had pretty much quit writing fiction when um, I was a student, but um, I turned the story into the first class I took with him, and the story got criticized quite severely, (laughs) and he asked me to stay after class, and I was terrified. I thought he was going to tell me that, um, you know, that I didn't have any talent, and he looked at me after everybody had left, and he said, well, now, this story of yours doesn't quite work, but I wanted to tell you that you absolutely have the ability to be a writer if you want to be. You just need to remember that a story takes a character over here and it walks him over yonder. (laughs) Um, And, you know, he paid brutally for having given me this this encouragement because about every three days I'd go into his office and say again, how do you know I can be a writer? And he would say, you have an ear for dialogue, you notice details. Um, you have the ability to look beyond the obvious in a character. You need to uh, learn some things about narrative structure. And that really said it in a nutshell, um, what, I, you know, what I needed to hear from somebody. 
And Willie Morris was also very oh, important yeah. to me. I, I took a class with him a couple of years later, and it made a big impression on me. Yeah, Willie had a gift of making you feel like you're 10 feet tall, too. He could make you like you can do anything. He really did. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, you know, <laughs> Willie knew pretty much everything a writer needed to yeah. know. And that's also because he had been a great editor. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, he of all the writers that I love, think about Willie. Willie created sense of place about as well as anybody. Oh, Willie was all about place. Yeah. I mean, you, know. you literally, my glasses fog up and I start sweating whenever I read sure. about him writing about around Yazoo City in the summer. Of course. You yeah. Know, he just had a gift on that. What what made you think, well, you know what? I think I'll, be, I think I'll teach too. Well, um, I, I've always loved university life. Mm-hmm. And, well, not always. I was not a particularly happy camper at Delta State, but that was mostly because I was an unhappy con- football the player. The rapid concussions you were getting. Um, but when I got up to Ole Miss, you know, there was a pretty good library there. There were smart people on the faculty. There were some other students who were interested in the same things that I, were, that I was interested in. And I loved the life. I loved being able to go in a room and talk about books with smart people and then leave the room and maybe go have a beer mm-hmm. and talk some more about books. And um, I just thought this is a good way to, to spend your life, and it does offer, um, you know, if you manage things well, it offers a chance to, to live a life that revolves around books. Yeah. But I think over time... Um, if I do say so, I've become quite a good teacher, and I've had a lot of students who have won major awards and had already very successful careers as writers, and I'm, I'm very proud of that. I feel like there were people who helped me. There was mm-hmm. Evans, there was Willie, there was William Harrison at the University of Arkansas, and uh, James Whitehead, who was another Mississippian. And I can't do anything for them. I could never do anything for them, yeah. but I felt like it was implicit in what they did for me that if you ever have the opportunity, you're supposed to pass it on. You can pay that forward. That, sure. That forward. And, you know, of course, you're at Emerson now, which is an amazing college. I had the right. honor um, right after Katrina, and I was about the time I was a Pulitzer finals, I think it was the second time. Anyway, mm-hmm. they invited me up because for some reason they thought I knew what I was talking about to be on a paddle, panel uh, about Katrina. Right. And I was just wowed by the students. And yeah. I mean, they're some of the best of the best coming through there. You know, I love the students. Yeah. And when I, when I went there, um, I know that they got me primarily for the graduate program. Mm-hmm. And I love my grad students, but the Emerson undergrads, it's just, it's a joy yeah. to be in the room with them. They're, they're young, they're fresh, um, they're passionate about what they're doing, and I just like them. Yeah, They're great kids. That makes your job a lot more fun, too. It, it yeah. really does. Uh, I, and I tell them, I hope you all find a life as rewarding as the one I found yeah. because, um, you know, I get paid for coming and being in your presence, and we talk about what we really love. And um, 
Oh, what could be better? If you have a talented student comes up to you and writes something and it's good and it's probably even better than some of the other kids in the class, but you realize that they're not living up to their potential, do you really ride them hard to, to where they start pushing? I was just kind of curious about how. Yeah, it depends. It depends on your reading of the individual. Right. You don't want to break them, I guess. You don't want to break them. Um, there are some people who need to be pushed. Yeah. There are some people who don't. Mm-hmm. If you if you push, you may push them right off the edge. Right. So I think being a good teacher, um, you know, to some extent involves being a good psychologist, which right. is the same skill that you're bringing to your treatment of characters. If you're when a you good write writer, fiction, right, right. You know. Yeah. So you have to treat them all as individuals. You, um, you're pretty busy with the teaching, and obviously you're always writing pretty mm-hmm. much. How do, you, how do you balance the two? Do you have a set time every day? Do you get up early and sit down and write, or how do you, how do you get both things done? You know, I, I used to be a nighttime writer, but I've become a morning writer. Mm-hmm. But for me, now that my daughters are out of the house, um, morning extends into the early afternoon. <laughs> yeah. And I don't write a lot each day. I write about an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, usually about the first 40 minutes are the writing, and right. the next 90 or you know 70 minutes or whatever is revising. Yeah. I revise as I go. And my goal is always to have no large problems to deal with right. at the end of a novel. That's just what works for me. Um, some days I write more, some days less. But when I'm writing on a book, I have to write every day. Yeah. And by that I mean I could take a month off and go to France. Mm-hmm. But then when I get back and I go back to work, it's going to have to be a lengthy period of doing it every day. Yeah. And it's probably fair, if I'm to be honest, to say that, especially when my kids were little, my family paid a little bit of a price for that because there were places that they wanted to go and, you know, Daddy was working on a book. And um, I think we handled it okay. Mm -hmm. But I get pretty single-minded, you know, because in, in a sense, that hour and a half or two hours a day you spend writing that's just the part where you're actually putting words on the page. But um, the rest of the time, I'm frequently walking around thinking about people who are not real for anybody else in the world, but they're real for me. And that's, that's where a lot of the writing happens, is thinking about the characters. Well, I mean, I, I hate to use this model, but the J.K. Rowling model of having everything pretty much mapped out, you know where you're going to go, or mm-hmm. when you write, do you do that, or do you sit there and say, okay, I just have an image in my head of where I want to start, and then I just take it on a journey and see where I'm going to end up? Um, it's closer to the latter yeah. than, to, um, than to Rowling's approach. Um, one of the most important pieces of advice that any writer ever gave me was... Um, I went up to Massachusetts, very close to where I live now, to meet the writer Andre Debuse mm-hmm. when I was 23, I think. And I was sitting out on his deck with him. This would have, well, I was a little bit older than that because I know it was the summer of 83. And I asked him, Andre, do, do you outline your stories? And it's one of those terrible moments. He looked at me as if I were crazy. He said, yeah. why would I want to do that? And I said, well, you know, they're so carefully constructed. And he said, well, 
if you wedge yourself to a notion of how things have to go, how do you think the characters can surprise you? Oh, wow. And, you know, I was like a punch drunk boxer just walking into a left hook. I said exactly what he probably hoped I would say. I said, my characters don't surprise me. And he put his arm around me and he said, oh, Steve, you better hope they figure out some way to. And I didn't know what he was talking about, but um, I did know. You're, I think with every word you read and every word you write, you're training yourself to think like a writer. Right. And there will be some moments where things just take a turn that you hadn't anticipated and you learn to go with them. Um, it's not that I'm, I am given to athletic metaphors. People say Tom Brady makes great decisions. Yeah. Tom Brady holds the ball on average 1.8 seconds before he throws it. Now, to my mind, that's not a decision. A decision is we'll get divorced. Yeah. He's reacting to what he sees in front of him, and he's taught himself to do that through repetition. That's what writers are doing. Right. It's just that we're using a mental muscle, um, and, and to some degree, so is he. Well, you talked about that. I mean, like if you go on vacation and then you come back and you start doing it, you have to continue, you have to start writing again before you can get back up to speed. Of course. And I mean, I'm that way. Somebody said, what's the hardest cartoon to draw? I said, the one where I come back from vacation because I haven't been yeah. doing it. You do atrophy. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Definitely in that. Larry McMurtry, um, the book, The Last Picture Show, that really influenced you, didn't it? It really did. Yeah. Um, I think that that was the book that made me realize that literature was not something that had to happen, um, you know, in Europe or in Latin America, that it could actually happen in, in a town like mine. Yeah. Um, and that book was, was the one that just made me see, you know, my life and the lives of my friends, the the guys I play football mm-hmm. with, the people I see in the Piggly Wiggly and Indianola. This is literature, too. It doesn't happen always in a big city. It doesn't happen in, a, in an exotic setting, although my, my Lord, Indianola would be exotic, <laughs> exotic to many people. That's right. Right. But no, that was, that was a seminal book for me. Definitely. The first time you're buzzed by a crop duster, you know, that's definitely very that's definitely exotic. <laughs> very exotic totally. as well. Just kind of, you were talking about how you hit a plateau as a musician. I don't think you're giving yourself a lot of credit because I've seen videos of you playing. You're pretty good now. But have you been able to back into it, been able to play? Uh, usually after midnight, you're sitting around picking well, a little bit. Um, that's not totally true. Okay. That was true in California, but in our house in Boston, <laughs> my wife can hear. Um, it's oh, you okay. know, It's, yeah. it's yeah. three stories, but... Um, She'll holler pretty quickly after I play a couple of G runs. Um, you know, I had almost quit playing some years ago yeah. because uh, it, it's kind of what happens to stop some people from writing. Yeah. I know what good sounds like, and it didn't sound like me. And I met a man named Kent Ippolito uh, some years ago at the Sewanee Writers Conference. Um, he was the husband of the late poet, Claudia Emerson, Mm -hmm. and Kent was standing on the porch playing a mandolin, and it was just breathtaking, and I thought, I want to play with him, and he became a a big influence on me. Um, You know, I'm about to turn 62, and (laughs) 
most things in life get worse, but my playing's gotten a lot better, <laughs> and it's nice. It makes me happy. Well, how does it feel to be home? You glad to be back for a little bit? Oh, I'm always glad to be back down here, and um, this state loves its artists. Not just its writers, but it loves its artists, and it's good to its artists. And I have discovered that Mississippi has never let me go. It's always nice to come back, too, when you've done something big on a, on a world stage, too, because everybody's like, oh, we're glad to have you back. Yeah, but at the same time, you're still just going to be you. Well, that's a good them. point, because they remember and everything you did in high remember. school. Yeah. <laughs> They remember the night you drank 39 beers in high school. Exactly, and threw up in the back of the Nova. <laughs> of course. Um, the next book, what's it going to be about? Well, the next book is about a pair of sisters growing up in the Mississippi Delta in the 1970s. And uh, the first section of the book is complete, and that section is set in the Delta and in their lives diverge. Uh, one of them ends up in New England. One of them ends up in California. Uh, various things happen to them. Um, and the book's covering like 40 years. Um, I became aware some years ago that all but one of my novels started in August and ended around <laughs> Christmas. And for a while, I couldn't figure that out. And then I thought, it's the structure of a football season. That's right. <laughs> That's what's structuring my novel. So my most recent one covers 10 years. Um, and this one's, I'm going to go out on a limb and see if it falls off under me. Well, the one thing I do enjoy about the, the, the current novel, the one I'm reading, is the fact that I now understand the, the Polish grocery market a little bit better. now. Yeah, well... <laughs> Uh, a relative of mine was a grocer in Poland, mm -hmm. and I remember, after, and, and he had been very successful under the communists because he understood the rules. Right. And I remember having a conversation with him around 1992 or three, and I said, are you worried about, you know, what's going to happen when Tesco and Carrefour and these Western chains come in? And he said, no, uh, we're not going to decorate our stores. We're going to keep them looking the way they look, and people will come to us. They'll feel, you know, they'll feel comfortable there. That worked for a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Did he end up having to commit a robbery? Just no. Like, okay. He did not commit a robbery, but he did fall upon hard times. Oh. Yeah. Well, you obviously have not, and, and I hope that the success continues. And I do appreciate you coming in and talking to us. Today. Oh, I had a great time. Yeah, yeah. it's great Thank to meet you. you, by the way. Like I said, I, I'm, I'm a fan. Same here. So. I'm Marshall Ramsey. Thanks for listening today. Subscribe to this podcast to be updated on new episodes. Conversations is produced by Mississippi Public Broadcasting. <laughs>